You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, 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 episode 78 with Dr. Marcy Poolsby. And today we're talking about bone health. First, a little bit about Marcy. So Marcy's a board certified in family medicine, and she has a subspecialty in sports medicine. She's the medical director of the Women's Sports Medicine Center at HSS, which is the hospital for special surgery in New York, and soon to be president of the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine. She has served as the team physician for the U.S. Biathlon and the WNBA New York Liberty. She sees patients for all sorts of sports medicine issues in Manhattan and White Plains, and she is a basketball gal. Today, we're talking about a lot of things related to bone health. So first of all, like what is bone health? What contributes to it? What contributes to low bone density? What is low bone density? And all of this, how it relates to our relationship with food, specifically disordered eating and eating disorders. What I think is so, so important about this conversation is that a lot of people don't know that it exists. People don't know that when you're in an energy deficiency and maybe moving a little bit too much, there's this imbalance of how much energy you're taking in and energy you're expending, that it has an effect on your bone density, which ultimately affects bone health in the long term, but also different parts of women's health. So fertility and menstrual cycle and all that kind of stuff. So we break down all different pieces of what this is, why it's important and what you can do to maximize your bone health. So I'm very excited to share this one. Let's just jump right in. Thank you, Marcy, for coming on the show. I'm so excited to do this and I'm excited to pick your brain. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, maybe before we start and even introduce our topic, can you just share with our listeners who you are? Sure. So I'm Marcy Goolsby. I'm a primary care sports medicine physician at HSS, Hospital for Special Surgery in New York. I see a lot of different things in my practice, but a lot of my practice is is kind of bone health in young athletes and stress fractures and treating those athletes that come in to see me. I went to school in California and Texas, and then did my residency and fellowship at UCLA, and then have been at HSS now for coming on 12 years. Oh, wow. So from California to New York. Yeah. Texas to California to New York and back and forth. I love it. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) So even just to start off with the basics, because we'll talk about bone health, assuming maybe that people don't know anything about it. What is bone health? What do you mean when you refer to that term? Why is it important? Just all that stuff. Yeah. So when we're talking about bone health, we're kind of specifically talking about if you think of the bones as like a system of the body, just like your, you have your GI system, you have your renal or kidney system, you have your bone system. And what's sometimes challenging with the bones is you often don't know there's a problem until there's a problem. Um, 
if at all, right, until you have a test or until you break something. So bone health is a little bit unique because it's really something that spans the, the entire life. So it's important from our infancy, you know, are you getting enough vitamin D when you're nursing? And are you, you know, getting enough calcium in your diet when you're a kid? Are you exercising? Is actually critical as a child. In fact, in some ways, even more important in our childhood and adolescent years, because that's when we're sort of building our max genetic potential is during that time. And then over time, you know, the bone health can decrease. And then particularly in our older years, that's where it really seems to have an impact where there's a decrease in women when they go through menopause and in men when they also go through hormonal changes later in life when we really see a decrease. So what we do as kids is trying to protect us when we're elderly. Um, and that's pretty unique, I think, for the systems in our body, but but super important. Yeah. Talk about long-term planning. That's like not something yeah. that any seven-year-old is interested in caring about. <laughs> But, you know, thankfully, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing from a public health perspective, we are, we're not necessarily talking about the bones and the benefit to the bone, but it's super important for the bones. So trying to get kids to be more active and, you know, keeping girls in sports, you know, there's a, a lot of push for that. We're not necessarily talking about the value to their bone health in those conversations, but that's actually super important because the benefits of exercise in childhood and adolescence stick, stays with you forever. Whereas when you're an adult, you do get benefit from exercise, but it's more reversible. Whereas when we're kids, that value from the exercise is lifelong. So That's the pretty cool. The benefits are great. Yeah. So you sort of alluded to this. Let's We'll talk about the exercise in a bit, just because I have so many questions about it, especially as it pertains to our listeners. What are some of the major factors that contribute to bone health or affect bone health? Well, I like to break it into intrinsic and extrinsic. So things that are you know, just part of our system, part of our body and things that we are external to us or that we have control over might be another way to think about it. So things that we can modify and things that we can't modify might be another way. So things like genetics play a huge role. There's not much you can mm -hmm. do about that. That's, that yeah. is what it sorry, is. Guys. So, <laughs> sorry guys. Thanks mom and dad or whoever, you know, you get those genetics. Ethnicity, same thing, can't change that. But, you know, if you're light skin, light eyes, um, Asian populations, there's certain certain ethnicities that are at a higher risk of having um, low bone density, for example. Things like exercise, which is modifiable, right? Things like making sure that your vitamin D is what it's supposed to be, making sure that your calcium intake is what it needs to be, the right kind of exercise, a variety of exercise. We can go into the nuances of the exercise part later, but then there's also the things that are not so good that we don't want to do. Smoking, hmm. heavy alcohol, and things that are medical, like certain medications, like steroids, there's certain breast cancer medications that have an impact on the bones. And then also when we're going through, and this is what we're going to talk more about, is things like eating disorder. Why is that so important? It's so important for so many reasons. I mean, it obviously can be an incredibly serious and sadly fatal disease. But when it's not to that level, there's also this huge impact on the bones that can be longstanding, particularly during those more formative years for the bones. There's certain medical illnesses outside of the medication that also can have impact on the, on the bones, like different hormone issues, for example. Okay. In terms of, I mean, I'm just, some of them are jumping out to me. In terms of, let's say, the calcium and the vitamin D, how do they interact mm -hmm. with bone health? 
specifically? Well, they're both elements that are critical for the development and turnover Mm. of bone. One thing that people don't maybe understand is the bone is very much a living organ like our stomach, like our kidneys, where they're constantly building up and breaking down, building up and breaking down. Think of just like a construction site where they're just building up, Mm -hmm. breaking down, building up, breaking down. And so those are key kind of building blocks or bricks for when you're building. Mm -hmm. And so if those aren't adequate, over the long term, slowly those can have impact on how the bone develops and the strength of the bone or what we measure is the density of the bones. So that's the role there. And unfortunately, you know, we often don't get enough dairy in our diet or calcium in our diet. It can be very difficult to get to what's recommended. And so there are some people in particular who may have reasons they, you know, either moral reasons, they might be vegan, for example, or other health reasons, or just they don't like it, or lactose intolerance. There may be a lot of reasons that people have to restrict their calcium intake through dairy. And so for those people in particular, making sure that they're either finding alternative valuable sources of calcium and or taking a supplement if indicated. Okay. And the supplement would be just as good? Yeah. Uh, well, no, I always, my, my line to patients is it's always better to get it through your nutrition. I think there's just mm-hmm. sort of an availability, if you want to think about it that way, that comes through things you get through food and nutrients mm-hmm. that are different, but good. Like if you need it, you need it. One little important side note is this is not more is better when it comes to calcium. And now we're thinking vitamin D more so than we perhaps thought before. It's not more is better. It's you get what you need and no more than that. So just taking a bunch of calcium throughout the day, you know, may potentially give you a kidney stone, for example. And then there's been more discussion about how that might impact even arterial calcification. So like heart disease and calcium or uh, buildup in your arteries, which we obviously don't want. So there's still, I think, a lot to be understood in that realm. But just like a lot of things in medicine, it's not, hey, let's put it in the water and everybody should get it. And there's an endless amount that you can take. It's like, well, no, you should get what you need to get. And that's it. Is that individualized or there's like a standard? Mm -hmm. Well, there are some standard ranges for recommendations of intake and it depends on whose guidelines you look at. (laughs) But like for calcium, for example, most people, it's kind of around a thousand milligrams, say, might be a little Mm -hmm. bit higher for somebody who's pregnant or nursing, or sometimes for the elderly, it can be a little bit different. So it can vary throughout the lifespan and the situation. But Unfortunately, with calcium in particular, you can't, there's no blood test that really tells me how much you're getting. So a lot of times I'll see patients and I'll be getting a series of labs and one of those will be a calcium. And I explain to them, this isn't because I'm checking, are you getting enough calcium? This is, is there a disorder of your calcium system? And that's really what this test is for. It doesn't tell me if you are eating enough or not. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. What about vitamin D? Just because it sounds like so many people are deficient in vitamin D. So is that a problem for yeah. all of us? Again, there's definitely still stuff we're learning about it, but um, a little bit different is that the, we, you know, we have a blood test that's fairly accurate. The caveat is that this is not true for every race. And so there's, there's variability in, in the vitamin D results sort of applicability or accuracy and Mm -hmm. not to get too sciencey, but it has to do with the fact that vitamin D is a hormone, like a lot of our hormones, and it can be bound up by proteins or it can be free floating around. 
And all mm. we really have a capacity to measure is what your total vitamin D is. But the truth is, is we really want to know that available one, the free one mm-hmm. that's floating around. And there's variability in the protein receptors in different races. So one race might not have a total that's high, but their available is just the same as somebody who has a higher one. And that's just difficult to extrapolate to the general population yeah. when you're making recommendations. So we do the best that we can to try to get people to a level that we think is um, important. And as you know, especially in the Northern climates where there's not as much sun exposure throughout the entire year, you know, we see that vitamin D deficiency being a higher rate. And we know mm-hmm. it's important for other things besides the bone, which is where we're really, I think, just scratching the surface. I mean, in the world of sports medicine, you know, what what is the impact on injury? What is the impact on muscle, et cetera? So lot to be learned there, but generally speaking, that is something where we can use a blood value a result mm-hmm. to, to make recommendations about vitamin D supplementation. Because though you can, there are some food resources, and obviously you can get it through the sunlight depending on where you are and what the situation is, I recommend supplementation a little bit more with that because Mm -hmm. it's, I think, more difficult to get that outside of supplementation, especially if there's a genetic, if genetically you have low vitamin D. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, You had mentioned the smoking and I sort of understand smoking as as something that's kind of universally not so great for your health. Yeah. How does it specifically, (laughs) yeah. How does it specifically affect bones? Oh, I'm not sure I can really answer that with a good sciencey answer. Why, like, what's the direct scientific explanation of smoking <laughs> on bones, except to say it's bad and it weakens the bones? <laughs> yeah. Definitely over time, like, there's zero doubt. It's one of those zero doubt things that, like, mm-hmm. smoking is very, very much weakens the bones. So we see a lot, yeah. of, a lot of people with a lot of fractures, unfortunately. Interesting. Who've been smokers? Yeah, as if we needed another reason. Right. <laughs> pros, cons for smoking. There's, yeah, not a lot of pros. Yeah. This just jumped into my mind. What is bone marrow and what, how does that have to do with this stuff? Is it connected? Bone marrow is, yeah. So in our bones, we have a outer layer that's made of a different substance in the middle is the bone marrow. And that's where the activity is happening. That's where we're making our red blood cells, for mm-hmm. example. So that's kind of more of the living hematology part of our bones that's in the middle. So I don't know the context of how you're asking that, um, if you're talking about something on an imaging report, but that's what that part of the bone is, the part that makes the blood vessel. Uh, blood yeah. Cells. I mean, I've mostly heard of it in terms of like marrow, what is it called? Transfusions or seven some oh, cancer patients. And Right, right, right. Bone that's... marrow. That's a whole different conversation for another day <laughs> and probably okay. not with me. Um, we'll close that yeah, can of worms. All right, guys, we're just yeah. going yeah. to like take a few steps close back and go back the next month. <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about bone marrow edema on an MRI that I can talk about. <laughs> That's what we see in stress reactions and stress fractures. Okay, maybe in a minute or next time. Let's, uh, let's just uh, talk a little bit about the exercise, what you're referring to mm-hmm. in terms of how it impacts bone health? So it's good for it. It's short. Um, Almost any and all, unless, Mm -hmm. and we're going to get to this more, unless it creates an imbalance with your your nutrition and and you sort of lose the value of it. But generally speaking, exercise in all varieties is good for bone for different reasons. So there's obviously people think about high impact exercise, like running or basketball, soccer, all those kinds of things that are good for the bones. 
We do know that multi-directional horses is better than more up and down. So that's why like a basketball player, <clears throat> my sport, um, is better <laughs> for the bones in the long run than something like running, which you would think mm-hmm. like running, it's so high impact. It's just over and over pounding. But mm-hmm. the truth is, it's that multi-directional that's actually better, the multi-directional loading of bones. The other thing that we know is that the benefit of strengthening is also kind of multifactorial, meaning you get the direct benefit on the bone of weight-bearing strength training exercises. But as you build the muscle, the muscles also pull on the bones and improve the bones in that way. So sort of indirectly creating traction or forces on the bones. And then the third value, especially as we get older, where the strength training is so, so important, is for fall prevention. So there's kind of a a saying that regardless of your bone density, if you don't fall, you're probably not going to break your hip, right? Obviously, we don't have (laughs) control over everything that happens to us. If there's something, you know, it's an uneven piece of sidewalk, which is what we have a lot here in New York. But being able to catch yourself and not fall is incredibly important, regardless of what your bone density is. So there's values for all those reasons. I mentioned earlier, too, that depending on when you're doing that and what kind of exercise you're doing has different impacts at different times in your life. So childhood is such an important part of our bone health because that exercise, like I said, number one, you sort of, I know you, the listeners can't see me, but if you imagine a graph as you're going from birth to like 18 to 25, you're sort of on this upward slope. And then once you hit that max kind of genetic potential, then it slowly comes down and then you Mm -hmm. hit menopause and it takes a little bit of a steeper dive. So what we do to try to get to our best bones possible is really critical during childhood and adolescence um, in terms of exercise, but also making sure we're not doing the bad stuff to the bones during that time too. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the too much. Is there such a thing as too much exercise? Because we know that, you know, if we're talking generally, yes, exercise is really great for the bones. But a lot of people that are that are with us today are mm-hmm. probably exercising maybe too much. Mm-hmm. So how do we know that? And what actually happens to the bones? I was actually listening to a recent lecture by a colleague, just kind of, you know, touching a little bit on that, like, what is the value of exercise? And we we're talking about it in the role of osteoarthritis, which is not the same as osteoporosis. A lot of my patients get that confused because they both start with osteo, which is Latin for bone. <laughs> but osteoarthritis, you know, there seems to be a sweet spot as far as exercise. Like we know that exercise is super valuable, super important. Definitely in my practice, my patients who come in who might have bone on bone arthritis and they're like, yeah, it doesn't really hurt that much. Almost across the board, they're exercisers, almost mm-hmm. always. Wait one um, second. What what is osteoarthritis? Osteoarthritis is the cartilage wearing down. It's wear and tear type of arthritis in the joints. Um, mm-hmm. Genetics, injury, weight, all of those things can increase your risk of osteoarthritis. But we do know that exercise can be very beneficial from in terms of managing symptoms. But similar to that, I think just even for health in general, and I'll get to the bone health part in a second, there does seem to be this potential for more is not better in terms of like even heart disease, believe it or not, that's still, there's still a lot to unfold. There is still a lot to learn about, but it does seem like with a lot of things in life, you know, moderation, everything in moderation, right? Exercise, super, super important. 
where people get into trouble with the bone health part of things is when they get into this world of the triad relative energy deficiency in sport where there's an imbalance between the nutrition and the exercise either inadvertently intentionally or sort of somewhere in between in the gray zone and it can be very difficult to have an adequate fuel supply when you're burning a lot of fuel and when that happens then unfortunately the bones are at higher risk of injury in that acute time frame so like a stress fracture for example is how they'll often present in the office but long term it can also have a serious impact on the bone health sometimes we'll see the third part of the triad so it's low energy availability or that imbalance between the nutrition and the exercise the second being the bone health and kind of the in between or thing the third part of that triangle is is the menstrual dysfunction or hormonal dysfunction. And there's a male version and a female version, right, where the hormones are suppressed. And in women, we'll see that with the impact on their menstrual cycle. So assuming somebody isn't on a birth control pill, because then you sort of lose that tool in your toolbox. But if somebody is not on birth control and they increase their exercise and or change their nutrition habits, and their period gets lighter, spaces out, goes away, that's a sign that there's something going on that's not good. And there's still a lot of, I think, misinformation and myths out there about losing the period as some sort of like badge of hard work or mm-hmm. a quote like, like only normal, athletes get that. Yeah, yeah. kind of normal part of being an athlete or expected part. It's like, well, common is not the same as normal or okay. So for those listeners out there who are getting regular periods, (laughs) that's a sign that there's an imbalance there most likely. And it's worth having a conversation with people like you, nutrition, sports doctors to kind of discuss whether there might be an issue there that could be addressed. Because long-term, the longer it goes on, the more impactful it is on the bones and the more chances there are of getting early osteoporosis or low bone density in the long run. Yeah. Well, how does the menstrual cycle or I guess any of the hormones play directly with the bone health? So if there is an imbalance there with the nutrition and the exercise, the body kind of goes into a conservation phase Mm -hmm. or conservation state where the volume gets turned down with the hormone system. From mm-hmm. the brain all the way down to the ovaries or the gonads, you know, in uh, testicles of men. And that whole system just gets turned down. The volume gets turned down. And there's a whole symphony of hormones that impact the bones. But the ones we think about most commonly are the sex hormones like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. When those are impacted, that has a direct effect on the bones. Again, the volume kind of gets turned down is the way I think about it. So the the bones want, the hormones are good for the bones. So within testosterone in men or the estrogen in women, when the volume is turned down, that has a negative effect on the bones. That's the reason menopause has the impact on the bones. And in elderly Mm -hmm. men, when their testosterone decreases later in life also has a negative impact on the bones because our, our bones like those hormones. In men, because there's no like menstrual cycle that can be taken Mm -hmm. away and we wouldn't notice that, we would notice that. Is there any piece of the hormonal or the, I guess the, the decrease in testosterone that we would notice an actual symptom? It has to. So what we do know, and there's a lot we're learning here. So 
you know, we have a female athlete triad position statement, and we have some more recent papers kind of creating guidelines for physicians. And then um, just recently came out with a male athlete triad to kind of mirror that to help guide clinicians and how they should screen for it, treat it, et cetera. From what we do know with, with the literature, um, with the research that's been done, is that there usually has to be a more serious suppression of the testosterone for it to get to symptoms. Mm -hmm. Um, so it can be harder and we don't have the period, right? We don't have that Mm -hmm. toolbox. So in men, it can present as something like women, a performance issue. So Mm -hmm. a fatigue performance, they're just like, you know, they're pooping out, like why, you know, that kind of thing can happen. It can also have because of the effect on the sex hormones, things like their sex drive or libido, erectile dysfunction. Those are kind of the main ones that we will see, but we can measure the hormones, right? In females and males, Mm. hormones are just, they're a little bit testy when it comes to lab tests. So um, we don't always hang our hat on that completely, but those are the challenges we have with identifying them in in men. And Mm -hmm. the other thing that um, is worth mentioning is the challenges that we have with identifying disordered eating or eating disorder in men. Sure. It can be very difficult for a variety of reasons. The literature shows that we don't think of it as much in the medical side. There's a lot of challenges for men talking about eating disorders and being admitting to eating disorders. We have sort of new varieties of these body dysmorphic issues thanks to social media and these sort of over-exercisers. And a lot of times where it sort of starts with this quote unquote, like healthy eating, and then it just snowballs, it just gets out of control mm-hmm. where it becomes a control issue. And so I think it's, it's harder to identify them. And we do know that they get mislabeled a lot of times as something else, some other mental health diagnosis and the eating disorder component sometimes is missed. So there's, there's a lot of extra challenges when it comes to our male athletes and our male patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, speaking of all of these hormones, et cetera, I'm assuming that then means, well, maybe I wouldn't assume, does it affect fertility uh, besides for bone health? I should mention too, the relative energy deficiency in sport or red S is very similar to the triad. We're essentially, it's essentially describing the same idea, same component, um, mm-hmm. but just trying to talk about some of the other implications with a little bit more detail. So it's a rename of the female athlete triad? It's not a, I wouldn't call it a rename because this, there's still very much like the different terms exist. There's more commonality than differences. So it's, it's sort of like saying, describing the same entity, but the triad is really trying to focus on the three things that we have the most research on and the relative energy deficiency in sport was sort of another group came out, the IOC, you know, came out with this paper around the same time we, there was the new triad paper. This was back many years ago now. And so they're really describing the same thing. They really complement each other. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the research is very much overlapping. So we'll sort of, it'll all be in one breath, the athlete triad slash red red S. Um, But one of the things that definitely is a negative consequence is fertility. 
And Mm -hmm. same idea as the bone health, where the longer that amenorrhea has been going on, the longer that hormone suppression has been going on, the harder it is to kind of come out of it to, in terms of the fertility and the bone health, like the chances of sort of recovering it, which is part of why, you know, people in this realm will really try to get the message out because we want these teenagers to know about it so that it's not ongoing for years. Um, Because the longer it goes on, the less likely that person's going to be able to recover from it in a lot of ways. So, you know, at the exact moment of it happening, a lot of times that's not the time people are thinking about having babies, like when they're going through a lot of these things in high school or college. But thinking about five, 10 years from now, if they do want to have kids, there can be an impact for sure. So when people use like sort of general statements saying this is irreversible, this is reversible, that Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily an accurate statement. It's much more individual and depending on how long the, I guess, malnutrition has gone on. Right. The severity of it, the duration of it. Absolutely. Yeah. You had mentioned something sort of like in passing and I wanted to bring it out of passing. (laughs) So In terms of really big information for us is the menstrual cycle. So is this person Mm -hmm. menstruating? And if the person is on birth control, then we don't know that because it looks like Mm -hmm. a period, but it's not. And you you just said something like, well, we're missing that from our toolbox. Can you just like say a little more what you mean by that? So yeah, if somebody, and by all means, if somebody wants to be on birth control of some kind, for purposes of birth control, they should be, right? But if somebody, I think where it becomes an issue is number one is we don't know if they would be getting their period on their own. That being said, we're still going to evaluate the nutrition and exercise balance and, you know, work with nutrition and, and making sure that somebody is doing what they're supposed to do. But we kind of don't have that to follow, right? And it's not perfect. Everybody's threshold for losing their period or resuming their period is different. The longer it's been gone, the longer it takes to get better is something to know too. Like years sometimes, even with doing everything right, it can take years for the period to come back. But if somebody's on birth control, we just don't, again, like we just don't have that tool in our toolbox for screening purposes and discussion of diagnosis. And whether somebody is getting their period or not on the pill can obviously depend on what they're on or birth control, I should say, because there's IUDs and other things too. So it's common, for example, on some of the low estrogen birth control pills and some of the IUDs to not have a regular period. I really, when I'm talking to my patients, just try to get like the full story of like the lifelong story of their period. How old were they when they started? Was that a normal age for their family? Was that late for their family? What was going on at the time? What were they doing in terms of exercise? Did they have any signs of disordered eating or eating disorder? If they never got a normal period, never started their period, that's different than somebody who gets their period and has it for a while and then it goes away. Same holds true for birth control. Let's say somebody is on a birth control pill and then they have a change in their diet, they have a change in their nutrition, they have a change in their weight, whatever it may be. And all of a sudden that monthly bleed, we'll call it a period, right? Goes away. Okay. Well, that's a sign that something happened, right? It's Mm -hmm. usually if, unless there's a change in birth control, you know, it's fairly consistent outside of those first few months, 
of what's going to happen. So that's what I mean by kind of losing that tool in the toolbox with, with the birth controls. We just, we don't have that. And things like our hormone tests are kind of out the window too, which aren't perfect. But when we're trying to diagnose somebody who might have early menopause versus this hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is what I was describing with the volume turned down hormone system causing the periods to go away, we just don't have that tool in our toolbox either. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily that the birth control itself is bad. It's just that right. it takes away so many opportunities for us to understand what's going on. Right. I think my biggest beef with when I see patients who come in with birth control is that they might've been seen, they might've not been getting their period and somebody just put them on a birth control pill without the discussion of why it happened and getting them Mm -hmm. the nutrition support, psychological support that they need if they have these other factors. I think it's getting better. I think there's in, you know, the medical world, I think there's more knowledge and understanding and discussion about those kinds of things. But that's kind of my main, I guess, beef is when somebody is put on one, but there's no conversation about why it happened. And I think it's a missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. So let's just say we are presented with a situation. Somebody is experiencing all of this. It's low bone mm-hmm. density, the triad, all that stuff. In terms of reversing it, is it a matter of just mm-hmm. increasing their intake, decreasing their movement? Is it more than that? It's independent. It kind of depends where somebody's at, what they're willing to do to some degree. Sure. What I think is good for them based on their injury history. I mean, there's a lot of other factors that go into that. But yeah, it's just trying to figure out how do we bring those into balance. I'm not someone who's crazy about a seven day a week, high intensity cardio schedule. I think our bodies need recovery time. Even if that recovery time, there's still activity. I think it's certain levels and certain situations. I understand that there may be people who really feel that they should and need to be exercising to that level seven days a week. But I do think we need recovery time. And so that might be a time where if I'm just seeing kind of the average athlete, a recreational athlete, and they're exercising seven days a week, I might suggest that they decrease that. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's a sign of what I describe as an unhealthy relationship with the exercise. So you could have an unhealthy relationship with your nutrition, with food, with a lot of things, um, with sleep, <laughs> with so many things. That's a big one, yeah. <laughs> but with exercise as well. I think if there's a control aspect, if they're using it as a crutch, if they're using it as a coping mechanism, and a lot of people need it for mental health, they need that outlet, and I'm fully supportive of it. But when I feel like that is all they rely on, that's when they get into trouble, especially if they get injured. Then it's like yeah. the you know what hits the fan for them from a mental health perspective. That can be a really challenging time for somebody. So I want them to think about developing that healthy relationship with their exercise, just like they do with other aspects of self care. Yeah. And how do we tell with the bone density? Is it through the bone density scan, or is it uh, mm-hmm. there are other ways? Well, the main way that we that we do it is, I mean, a good history is important broken bones, stress fractures, menstrual history, eating disorder history. And sometimes I'll even look for some zebras in their history from bone health perspective. But the bone density test or called the DEXA is what we have at our disposal, essentially. And it's sort of like an X-ray. And what it does is it measures certain parts of the body that we have essentially a catalog of values 
for across the population. In somebody who's gone through menopause, we use something called the T-score. And if you ever had to take statistics, it's essentially a standard deviation. So Mm -hmm. zero is average. Anything in the positive is better than average. Anything in the negative is lower than average. And depending on that score, you get put into a category. So you kind of get a grade. So if your T-score is minus 2.5, you know, that's considered osteoporosis. For premenopause women and and, um, men under 50, we use a Z-score, and that's basically comparing somebody their age, their gender, Um, Mm. again, using normal values of thousands of people. And then again, you get a score. Are you better than average, average, um, or less than average? And we, again, define, use those as a point in time, but a lot of times we're trying to follow that over time. So we're doing, we may be doing it serially, depending on what somebody's values are, their ongoing risk factors, et cetera, and watching that over time to make sure it's not getting worse. So the body part depends on, to some degree, on the place that you get it, but lumbar spine or low back, the hip, a couple different spots in the hip, sometimes the wrist. In younger, younger, and like the pediatric population, we'll use conglomerate score for the total body minus head and the lumbar spine. So different body parts, depending on sort of what the recommendations are from the radiology society. The definitions get a little bit tricky too. So for example, anything with a Z-score of minus two or better is considered normal by the International Society for Clinical Densitometry. But the female athlete triad group kind of created their own definitions for athletes because athletes should have a five to 15% higher bone density than a sedentary counterpart. So Mm. kind of incorporating more of those other risk factors. So somebody with components of the triad, with certain risk factors, uh, with certain, excuse me, stress fractures, they're going to get sort of a different definition. So low bone density, if they're minus one to minus two, if they have one of these other factors, and then oh, minus two or worse is considered osteoporosis using the wow. using the Z-score. So it gets a little, I know, confusing, but <laughs> more important than that individual test is everything, right? Like the history where you are in time, what we're going to do to follow it over time. So taking it in isolation can be detrimental. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other things that are out there too. So they can do a trabecular score on the bone density test to try to get a better idea of like what the, what the sort of holiness is of the bones (laughs) with cheese. And then they have some other radiology tools, but mostly that's in research that they're looking at those. It's less kind of common practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Just this popped into my mind. How do you know if it's due to triad this, all the stuff we're talking about or early onset menopause, meaning low density question. I mean, a lot of it is just like what fits the picture um, Mm -hmm. and taking a really good history. And sometimes our lab tests can be helpful in that. Um, you know, with a hormone test specifically, the amenorrhea part, the not getting the period part is a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning Mm -hmm. you also want to make sure that they don't have a prolactinoma, which is a tumor, um, in the brain that produces prolactin and that can make the periods go away. Thyroid issues, polycystic ovarian syndrome, which you can have both PCOS and functional hypothalamic amenorrhea from the triad. So that can be confusing too, because not everybody who has PCOS necessarily looks like quote unquote PCOS Mm -hmm. and vice versa. 
So there can be other reasons that people have abnormal periods. Obviously, mm-hmm. you want to make sure somebody's not pregnant. Also, yes, <laughs> that's an easy that's an easy one to to make sure that that's not the case. So, yeah, there can be other reasons, and it's important not to, you know, really plug somebody into that without taking a good history. Essentially, yeah. Uh, just because you had mentioned it, how does how is the thyroid connected with bone health? If the thyroid is too high or too low, so hypothyroidism or hyperthyroidism can affect the menstrual cycle and then also, you know, long-term can impact the bone health. If you mm. have a diagnosis of hypothyroidism and you're on appropriate supplement, it's it's not. It's not just having thyroid disease. It's having not controlled thyroid disease that's um, more of the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is so interesting. Uh, I'm hoping that besides for gathering information when people hear this is that there's a clear direction in which to go meaning if they have lost their period or even they're just experiencing some sort of disordered eating, eating disorder, this is why we order DEXA scans. This is why we need to make sure that nutrition is up. And, and sometimes the exercise is down and, you know, just taking steps to get the help that they or need. adjusting the exercise, right? So if it's like yeah. seven days a week of just running, maybe we need to mix that up for a variety of reasons from an injury (laughs) prevention perspective. You know, do we, is there more cross training? Is there more strength training? I can't say strength training enough Mm -hmm. and flexibility work, yoga, Pilates, like what is it that's going to be valuable, not only for their bone density and the triad, but just for their overall health, you know, having Mm -hmm. that variety and having the, you know, the value of strength training for injury prevention purposes is incredibly important. Yeah. I guess my only concern is that it, people might take this too much with a grain of salt and say, say in their treatment plan for the first X amount of time, they're quote prescribed not to move at all or mm-hmm. much and definitely not high intensity. And mm-hmm. the argument is like, well, it's really good for your health. Like, why would you take it away? You know? No, totally. And it's very rare that I really say like completely nothing. Um, mm-hmm. Usually we try at HSS at the Women's Sports Medicine Center, we really try to keep like, like our, <laughs> some of our ad campaigns say, like keep people moving, keep them in the game. And I think it's sometimes it's just an adjustment. There are certain things where I tell people, look, give me two weeks. Just trust me. If, if we try to push through this too much right now, it's just going to make this stick around longer. So give me two weeks of really like stay off of the crutches, whatever it may be, depending on the injury. And then let's build from there because we do also know that people get injured when they're coming back from injury, right? So yeah, there's a lot of work in this whole acute to chronic workload ratio and just like load in general and like when injuries happen. And sometimes it's a necessary evil, but a lot of times we can figure out, okay, maybe we just pivot, right? That's like the words of the century, I think. Yeah. Maybe we just <laughs> pivot, right? I hear that so much. Maybe we just pivot and kind of go this direction for a bit while you're recovering from this injury that maybe stemmed from this particular activity. And then in the bone health side of things too, again, like, okay, I need to figure out how we back off from burning so many calories so that we can work on the nutrition side to make sure we come to a better balance. Because in the recovery time, a lot of times Unfortunately, that's a trigger for an eating disorder for a lot of people because they go down this, well, I'm not exercising, so I don't need to eat anything. 
And the reverse could not be more true. When we're healing, where our bodies are like our machines are in overdrive trying to heal. And we need that fuel to heal just as much as you need the fuel to exercise. So see that become a trigger sometimes because people are afraid, especially if they're fat fearing, like they're afraid they're going to get fat. It can be a real trigger for people. So that's a whole nother reason that I really do try to keep people moving because I want them to feel like they haven't lost their identity as an athlete and that Mm -hmm. they can still participate in some fashion just with an adjustment. Yeah. And also why it's so important to work with a team and a doctor like you and just other, you know, mental health providers, therapists, dietitian, all that stuff, just to make sure sure we're covering all our bases. Yeah. This is not a single, single coach sport. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I like that metaphor. (laughs) All right. Well, yeah, we obviously can do this all day just for the interest of time. Well, we're going to wrap up, but before we do, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn a little bit more about you and your work? I'm at HSS. I'm, you could just Google me. And I think my HSS profile would come up first. I work with a fantastic group of women in the Women's Sports Medicine Center at HSS, where we really do try to focus on the whole person. Um, so we have a lot of ancillary services, physical therapy, exercise, physiology, nutrition, um, psychologists that we use in our in our group to really try to keep people going. So yeah, my, I guess my, my HSS profile would be the best place to get me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. Yeah, I really appreciate you. it. And, and congrats again on your new uh, role. Thank you. And thank <laughs> you for continuing to fight the good fight and all the work that you do. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter you'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.